Well, good morning. It is a joy to be here with you all. I have never had the experience of visiting a church for the first time, but knowing so many of the people in it. Uh, it's, a, it's a happy one. Uh, let me begin by reading our Bible passage this morning. It's Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 19 to 30. This is God's word. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Well, I wonder if, uh, as I just read that, or at any other time when you've been reading the Bible, you've had the question that I have had this week about this passage, which is, why is this in the Bible? So the Bible is the infallible deposit of God's word to mankind, and especially to his people. It's what God wants all of us to know until the Lord Jesus returns. And for some passages in the Bible, probably many, many passages in the Bible, it's just immediately obvious to us uh, why God would want that in his word to his people. So I think of Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 6 to 11, which I believe you guys studied together two weeks ago. It's just this beautiful, what some have thought to be a hymn or a poem to Jesus Christ about his pre-existent glory and his humiliation and his service and his suffering and his death and his resurrection and his exaltation, right? It's the gospel of our salvation. It's really obvious why God would want all of us to know that. It's really clear why that made the cut uh, for the Bible. But some passages, it's no, equal, uh, no less, excuse me, inspired, no less edifying for us, but it's kind of less obvious to us immediately why this is in the Bible. So our passage is basically a bunch of travel logistics, right? So there are two paragraphs in the ESV. So first, Paul talks about Timothy. He says, I'm going to send Timothy to you guys soon. When I hear how it's going to go with me, I'm in prison. I might die. I might not. Hope to send him soon. He's a great guy, right? Second paragraph, he talks about Epaphroditus, one of the Philippians, you can tell from this passage, who had prior been sent to Paul with a gift from the Philippian church, he is probably the one carrying the letter to the Philippians back to the church. So he would hand them the envelope, they'd open it, and Paul would say, this is why I've sent Epaphroditus to you. And as you can see, it's pretty situation specific, right? None of us have ever met a Timothy or Epaphroditus. So 
we might wonder, why does God want all of his people, until the Lord Jesus comes back, to know that there was this guy named Epaphroditus? He went to Paul, and he went back, and he was sick, and then, but like, it's okay, because he got better, and they're rejoicing. Like, why does God want all of his people to know this? Well, I think it's because Paul, and more importantly, the Holy Spirit uh, inspiring him, is an excellent teacher. And he's giving us a worked example of something that he's already taught in the book of Philippians. So you think about a good math teacher. I know we don't all like math, but probably we've all been in some sort of math learning environment at some point. Uh, And a a math teacher often will explain like a new kind of problem, right? And explain here are kind of the math principles behind what you're about to do. And here's the kind of problem, here are the steps. And everyone in the class is like, deer in the headlights, like, what is going on, right? But if he's a good teacher, what does he do next? Right? He grabs a dry erase marker, and he starts working problems on the board. He says, so that stuff I just told you, here's what one looks like. Here's an example of this principle that I've told you. Here's what it would look like when you do it. Well, Paul has already taught the Philippians something that they are to do in principle, in abstract terms. And it relates back actually to that passage I mentioned a minute ago, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. This hymn about the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel, what he has done to save God's people. And that passage is basically the core or the engine of Philippians. Everything in the letter, as I can tell, relates back to that passage, to what that passage says about what Christ has done. Let me just read it for us Uh, one more time. So this is Philippians 2, starting in verse 6. It starts with who, and in context, that's the Lord Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the heart of Philippians And in the context of that passage that I've just read, Paul is actually encouraging the Philippians to do something. So if you look at the verse right before verse 6, verse 5, he says, Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours or which is in Christ Jesus. This thing I'm about to tell you about, have this in yourselves. This hymn to Christ comes in the context of Paul urging Christians to humbly, self-sacrificially, lovingly pursue unity and serve in the gospel together. And now, having set it out in the abstract, he picks up a dry erase marker and he says, and here's what that would look like. Here's what that might look, did look like, does look like in the lives of three, in particular, real-life boots-on-the-ground Christians, Paul, Epaphroditus, and Timothy. So what is it that we see in these examples what what is modeled in the lives of these men and the relationships that paul points us to in this passage chapter 2 verses 19 
to 30. Well, in summary, I think what Paul is showing us is that the gospel creates Christ-like care, service, and joy in God's people. The gospel creates Christ-like care, service, and joy in God's people. So Lord willing, that's going to be our outline for the rest of our time this morning. We're going to chop it into four. So first, we're going to see that the gospel is what creates all of this. And then we're going to see the three particular things that Paul points that the gospel does create. So the first thing we need to see is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what creates everything good that Paul holds up as an example in this passage. It is true this is a passage commending us to follow the example of godly people. This is a passage uh, with implied moral instruction. We should do something in light of this passage. But this is not do-it-yourself, moralistic self-improvement. Right? Paul does hold up examples, but this passage is not reducible to we are great, be like us. And I say that because Scripture and even this book of Philippians makes really clear that these three men and the commendable things about them are commendable in any sense only because of God's grace in the gospel. So we're going to think about all three of the men mentioned. First Paul, then Timothy, then Epaphroditus. So what do, we, what do we know about Paul before he met the gospel or before he was changed by the gospel? Well, you only have to read a few verses more in Philippians. Paul was not a servant of Christ Jesus. He was a hater of Christ Jesus. He was not a lover of the people of God. He was not a pursuer of true righteousness. He was a self-righteous man on a religious campaign to kill and persecute God's people. But what happened? Well, as Paul says in chapter 3, he was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. I, I'm tempted just to kind of dip in and and preach part of chapter 3 because it's awesome, but we won't. Paul basically, this man committed to his own righteousness, to performing all that the law of God said. He realized that his righteousness was bankrupt, and he received for free the righteousness of Jesus Christ, God's love and approval, on the basis of not what he had done, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ had done. He was radically changed, reconciled to God, and made a new person. One of the things I love about the book of Philippians is that this is where we find some of the most like high octane calls to pursue Jesus Christ, right? To make living Jesus Christ and dying gain, right? It's, this is one of the letters that makes us like, okay, it is good to be like religiously intense for Jesus Christ. But there's no letter in the New Testament, maybe other than Romans, that makes it so clear that we don't do that to earn God's favor. We do that because we have been given it freely in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is an example to us only because he has been changed and forgiven and made new by the gospel. So that's Paul. Second person mentioned here is Timothy. What do we know about Timothy? Well, Paul says in one of his other letters that Timothy from childhood was acquainted with the sacred writings, the Old Testament, that was able to make him wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. What does Paul say in 1 Timothy chapter 1 to Timothy as a trustworthy saying? What is that salvation that's in Christ Jesus told about in the Old Testament? 
It's that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not good people, sinners. And what is Timothy's labor in this passage? Well, Paul, in verse 22, he calls it service in the gospel. So Timothy's commendable work is really spreading the good news of undeserved grace to sinners in Jesus Christ. And as he was doing that, he was compelled by the love of Christ for him. He laid himself out for others in service and love because Christ had done that for him when he was his enemy, when he was unworthy. Third and finally, Epaphroditus. What do we know about Epaphroditus? Well, he, Paul says, was one of the Philippians. It seems like Epaphroditus was converted because of Paul's work, Paul's bringing the gospel to Philippi. And, and who, who's responsible for the conversion of the Philippians? Right? In chapter 1, Paul says that God began a good work among them. That's why Epaphroditus loves Jesus at all. That's why he's willing uh, to love and serve and care as we see that he does. So if you're not a Christian and you're here today, first I just want to say how welcome you are. I know this church loves and wants to welcome everyone to come and be with us. We're so thrilled that you're here. You need to know that what you need most is not a moral example to follow. What you need most is not a moral example to follow. You need a savior. You need someone who can cleanse you and forgive you for your failure to follow the example of what you should be. You need faith in Jesus Christ to despair of your own righteousness and to trust in Christ for forgiveness. See, God's saving, forgiving, transforming grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ creates everything good that we see in this passage. If you're not a Christian and you have questions about that, please come talk to me afterward. Come talk to any of the Christians that you know here, any of the members of the church. We'd be delighted to do that. Okay, so the gospel is responsible for everything good that we see in this passage. What is the good that Paul holds up? What does the gospel create? Well, three things. First, it creates Christ-like care. Christ-like care among believers for one another. We see that in verse 19 in the Apostle Paul. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Why? So that I too may be cheered by good news of you. That's kind of a wimpy translation. Paul doesn't want to just like have a little bit of cheer in hearing about friends that he's not seen for a while. He wants peace of mind. He wants joy and encouragement by hearing that the Philippians are still pursuing Jesus Christ. Even as we read in the passage from 2 Thessalon- or Thessalonians 2, 1 Thessalonians 2 earlier, there was persecution at Philippi. It was hard to follow Jesus, very likely. And Paul wants to hear, he says elsewhere, that the Philippians are standing firm in the gospel. He wants joy from the knowledge that God's people in Philippi are okay. He cares about them. This matters to him. This registers on his like mental, emotional radar. This is important to him, how the Philippians are doing. We see that Timothy, the gospel has produced care for God's people in Timothy. Look there in verse 20. Paul wants to send Timothy. Why? Verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. 
Timothy is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. That's what makes him so useful to Paul. Right? Not necessarily his pedigree, his education, his giftedness, his charisma. It's because he cares deeply and personally about the Philippians, about how they are spiritually, about their joy in Jesus. Actually, that word for genuine concern there, it's the same word that Paul uses in chapter 4. He's using it in a different sense, clearly, but it's clearly related. When in chapter 4 he says, don't be anxious about anything. Right? To be anxious. You're anxious about stuff that matters to you. Right? It's, it's existential. It's real. It's personal. Well, Paul says, not in a negative sense that Timothy's not trusting God with the Philippians, but in a positive sense, born out of love, Timothy is concerned. He's, if you will, in a godly way, anxious about how the Philippians are in the Lord Jesus, about their walk with him, about their welfare, about their joy. We see this also in Epaphroditus. The gospel has produced care for God's people in Epaphroditus. Look there at verses 25 and 26. So Paul says, I'm hoping to send Timothy. I have sent Epaphroditus, verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Why? For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. This is, honestly, this is godlier than I am, I often am, or maybe ever am, right? When I'm sick, what do I care about? I care about getting better, right? I care about feeling better, taking Advil, sleeping, and getting better. Epaphroditus was sick. He was sick because he had been to administer a gift to the Apostle Paul. And he's distressed. Why? Because his home church in Philippi had heard that he was sick. And he's distressed about the emotional anguish that his sickness, which is almost killing him, is going to cause that church. That is deep care for not even, it doesn't even seem like he's like worried about them spiritually in this verse. Obviously he is. But just welfare, like their, their joy generally. He doesn't want them to be distressed by the fact that their friend and one of their members is sick. Right? Epaphroditus cares about these believers. So it's, it's worth asking, what has been of genuine care to you this week? What has been of genuine concern this week? What has weighed on your mind? What are the outcomes that you've really dreaded or really hoped in? What are the things that have mattered, that have gone around and around in your head? I have to confess that often the things that are of genuine concern to me are things about me, things that terminate on me getting what I want. And even, even when we do things for other believers, sometimes we can be like I am toward, or I was, toward my lawn back in Texas when I lived with my family. So when I lived in Texas with my family, it was my job to mow the lawn. And I would like to think that by God's grace, I did a good job. You can ask my mom about that. Uh, but I didn't care at all all about the lawn. Like, I lost no sleep over bad weather in Houston that was going to mess up the lawn. I, like, I spent time doing it. I knew it was important. I cared about my mom, hopefully, but I, I like, did not care about the lawn. Whether it, you know, lived or died meant nothing to me. At times, when we serve other believers, I can be like this. We can do it because we know it's important, but it, 
it's not of genuine concern to us. It hasn't made it into our hearts to the degree that we could be said to be in a godly way anxious about whether our brothers and sisters are happy in the Lord Jesus, whether their needs are met, whether they're, they're enjoyed, whether they're walking with Christ. So how do we, how do we change that, right? How do, you, how do you start to care about something? That's so much harder than, you know, just go do and do this thing. Well, I think we have to start by remembering that this is Christ Jesus' attitude toward his people. Right? This is, as Paul says, the mind that is in Christ Jesus for you, if you're a Christian. I think of, of the Lord Jesus when he was more stressed, must have been, or under more external stress than any of us probably have ever been. Crowds on crowds of people every day coming to him for healing, for care, for teaching. And I have to confess, if that had been me, I'd have been like, oh my goodness, look at that crowd. I'm going to have to lay hands on that whole smelly crowd one by one. It's like, man, are these the people that I'm dying for? I, I mean, I love God, so I'm going to do it. But like, oh my goodness. But what, what was the Lord Jesus' attitude when he saw the crowds? What do the Gospels say was in his heart when he saw the crowds? The Gospels say that Jesus had compassion on them. He loved them. He cared about them. Christian, Jesus Christ cares about you. He cares about how you are. Peter says to cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. I love that song, uh, It Is Well With My Soul, right? Whatever's going on, let this blessed assurance control. Not that, you know, Christ has gotten me out of a hole so I don't have to worry about hell, right? Christ has regarded my helpless estate, right? When, when I was going to hell as God's deserving, hell-deserving enemy, Christ cared about me to the point that he was willing to go even to the cross, right? That love, when you know that Jesus loves you like that, and that issues in love back for Jesus, what does Jesus want? I'll do anything. I love him. He has loved me. What does he want? Well, Paul says that Timothy is genuinely concerned for the things of Jesus Christ. And what does that look like? Concern for other believers. Concern for the people that Jesus Christ is concerned about. The gospel produces Christ-like care in God's people. May it be so among us. Second thing that the gospel produces is Christ-like service. So this is not mentioned explicitly in the passage, but it, it's very clearly in the background. The reason Paul's having this whole exchange with the Philippians is because the Philippians had sent a generous gift to Paul when he was in prison, right? That's them serving Paul. They're giving up things that they had for Paul's benefit, his physical benefit, right? Paul says, I'm, I'm fine spiritually because I have Jesus, but they're, they're giving up things for his physical comfort. That's service. Timothy's service is evident in this passage, right? Paul mentions in verse 23 his proven worth, 22 rather, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Epaphroditus is mentioned as serving. He served not only by going to Paul, which is why Paul calls him not only his fellow worker and fellow soldier, but the Philippians' messenger and minister to my need. 
that Epaphroditus has served Paul because of the gospel in this passage. And I just want to highlight quickly two features of the service that we see that the gospel has created in God's people in this passage. So two features of Christ's people serving one another that we see in this passage. First, the service is sacrificial. Right? It cost Epaphroditus to serve Paul. It almost cost him his life. It cost him being sick within an inch of his life, from what Paul says. He didn't, you know, bail when it became inconvenient. This wasn't him giving the money that he didn't know what to do with, right? It cost the Philippians to give to Paul, right? All, all giving. You're saying, I have this money. I could probably think of something fun or rewarding to spend it on, but I'm going to give it up, right? I'm, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost me to give this. This passage shows us that we cannot only give and only serve when it's convenient. We cannot only give the money that we just can't think of anything to do with. We cannot afford not to serve because it might make us tired or it might conflict with other priorities of ours. Right, we have to be wise. We're not Jesus himself. We can't save the world. We can't do everything. But this passage does show us that it's good and right when Christians at cost to themselves serve by meeting the physical needs of other believers and by acting for their joy in the faith. Prayer is one way to do this. I assure you, if you commit to praying regularly and earnestly, you will have less time for other things. That's how, how it works, right? And I, I find just personally that I can't be earnest in prayer for other believers if the only time that I'm praying is like walking from my house to my car. You know, like, Lord, please bless so-and-so, and now I'm in the car, right? If we're going to be earnest in prayer for other believers, that's a sacrifice that's going to cost something. And this passage says that that's good. Paul holds up that kind of giving and service as an example because think of what it cost Jesus Christ to serve us. It cost him death, even death on a cross, how much more willing should we be to serve those whom God has saved alongside us, who've been served by Christ when we were his enemies? So the gospel creates Christ-like care. The gospel creates Christ-like service in the lives of God's people. Third and finally, the gospel creates Christ-like joy in the lives of God's people. You can tell this is a passage filled with joy particularly joy in relationships. We already mentioned that in verse 19, Paul, he wants to be cheered by news of the Philippians walking in Christ, right? He, he wants to be made happy because they're okay, because they're still following Christ. Paul mentions Timothy serving with him. Surely it's significant that he says that he served as a son with a father, as a son with a father. Timothy, like, that's, that's affection language. Paul, Timothy wasn't just doing his work, content to be the assistant, not particularly enjoying it. Timothy surely was loving Paul as, as his father in this work. There's affection, there's joy there. Down in verse 29, Paul says to receive Epaphroditus with all joy. Paul, who had said that it's better to die and be with Christ. My joy is going to max out when I go to be with Jesus. But it's more important for you guys that I stay on earth. The Paul who knows that, he says that if Epaphroditus had died because of his sickness, that would have been to him sorrow on sorrow. 
Right? Paul, Paul doesn't need teaching about what's going to happen to Epaphroditus. Right? He knows if Epaphroditus dies, he's with Christ. But Paul says, if I lose him, that's going to make me sad. And what does that say? That says that the relationship between Paul and Epaphroditus was one that gave Paul joy. And I, I don't think that it was a joy that was built on, like, you know, common hobbies. As great as that joy is, that's a fine joy. It seems like the way that Paul describes him as his brother and his fellow worker and his fellow soldier, his joy in communion with Epaphroditus is that they're pursuing Jesus together. They love Christ together, and that's of joy to them. Christians, this, this is an invitation for us to get in relationship with one another where we are pursuing Christ together, to serve alongside one another and to have joy as we know each other, as we serve each other, as we're blessed by each other. There are a million ways you can do that. I wonder if a great lunchtime conversation would be, what are some practical, concrete ways that I could better serve fellow believers in the Lord Jesus in order to get joy in a way that would bring us joy because we're closer with one another? You see, the joy that Paul has is, is wrapped up in the love and the, the care and the service that he's talked about earlier in this passage. But I think there's even more joy in this passage than just joy in relationship with one another, Paul's enjoyment of Epaphroditus. I think there's actually joy in one another's joy in Jesus. The people in this passage have joy in one another's joy in Jesus. So let me explain. Recently, I was at a wedding. I was in the wedding. I was gonna say that it was Stan and Rebecca Crocker's wedding, but I didn't put that in my manuscript because I didn't want to embarrass them. Um, and the wedding was a great time, right? It was very joyous, in part because we loved each other, right? We got to spend time in relationship with one another, and we enjoyed that. But also, we had joy in the bride and groom's joy in one another, right? Only two people got married at the wedding, as far as I know. But everyone had joy in the fact that these two people had joy in each other, right? That's what's going on with Paul here, right? He's delighted. He wants to be delighted when he hears, ah, the Philippians whom I love, even though we can't hang out, even though we can't see each other, they are happy in the Lord Jesus. And that makes me happy because I know the same Lord Jesus. And I love them and it's great that they have the best thing. Paul's joy in Philippians I know has been mentioned as Philippians has been preached through here, is overflowing because even though he's in prison and suffering for the gospel, he has Jesus Christ, right? Nothing can take that from him. In chapter four, he'll say, I know how to be content in whatever circumstance. I can do all this because of him who strengthens me, right? He has the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. But that's not all of his joy. Paul's joy in Christ extends to other believers' enjoyment of Christ as well. Because of Christ, I love these people. And I'm so excited that they have Jesus Christ too. So many of the songs that we sing on Sunday morning, they use the pronoun, you know, I or me. That's fine. Plenty of the Psalms use singular pronouns. But many of the songs that we sing, they use plural pronouns. They say we, they say us, they talk about the church. 
And that's to point us that we should rejoice, not only that we have Jesus Christ, but the person on my left and the person on my right, the people that I've covenanted with to seek Christ, they have Jesus too. I love them, I want their welfare, and I'm so glad that they have the most precious thing, which is Jesus Christ. I wanted to close with a quote from Saint Anselm, who was a Christian who lived 900 years ago uh, largely in England, through an error entirely of my own. I do not have the, the text of the quote, the quote, but I just want to share the idea of it with you. Anselm is closing a section in his book where he's talking about how every joy in this world, all of the physical pleasures that God has given us, which are good and right, they point and are fulfilled in our pleasure in God, in knowing the maker of those pleasure, whose goodness, even as we prayed earlier is the fount of all of those good things. Knowing God, being with him, seeing him in eternity, that's our joy. But Anselm, he takes this, this turn, right? I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to close with Anselm and God, right? Wow, I'm so full of joy. But then he says, think about all the people who in glory you will love perfectly. You will not love them as we so often love one another on this earth, partially, selfishly, you will love them perfectly, which means that you're going to delight in their delight, right? If you love someone, you want that person to be happy. And our joy in God, in Christ, is going to be multiplied immeasurably by the fact that all of the other saints whom God has laid hold of in love, whom he's caused us to love through the gospel, their joy is immeasurably full in God as well. It's going to be one massive joy fest in glory. And it doesn't have to wait until glory for us to get started. Our passage in Philippians teaches us that the gospel creates in God's people Christ-like care, service, and joy. That's what we see in the lives of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. May God make it so among us. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who, when we were his enemies, cared for us. Lord, looked on us in compassion and love and even now stands praying for those that he loves, for those that he cares for. God, we thank you for his service to us in the cross where he dealt with all of our sin at great cost to himself. Lord, we thank you for his joy even in us lord we thank you that you say that you rejoice over your people with singing lord we are unworthy and we glorify your name god we pray that even as you worked in paul and in timothy and in epaphroditus in the philippians to create these fruits of the gospel we pray that you would work in loudon valley baptist in our hearts in our souls and minds care and service and joy in the Lord Jesus and for and in one another. Lord, we praise you, glorify your name. Through Christ our Lord, amen.